fancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Come on in for an evening of poems and stories about the American West. A land of legend, of romance, of friendship and courage. A motherload of remembrance. A true showcase of the Old West with the old cowboy, J.C. Holsey. I'm really excited about today's show. We've got some poetry that wasn't written by the old cowboy. And to top that off, his wife's a singer. You're in for a real treat with this couple. And our special guest author today is somebody that I've admired ever since I threw my hat into the author ring. One of Amazon's best-selling authors, W.R. Benton. But before we visit with him, let me say a couple of things that are bothering me. First of all, go holler at your neighbor and tell him the Wild West Showdown is on right now. I'm kind of on a rant today. I cannot understand big businesses like AT&T, Yahoo, HostGator, and a news service that I signed up for recently. I won't name them just yet, but as I said, I'm very upset with the big three that I named. Now, I realize Yahoo is free, so they really are under no obligation to help anybody. But the other two, I paid good money for their services. I was on the phone for three days trying to straighten out the problem, and it's still not fixed. It seems like everybody wants to blame the other guy. Well, the old cowboy called the other guy, which blamed the other guy until he got to Yahoo. Of course, you can't call Yahoo because they closed down their helpline. And when you try to email them, they give you scripted questions that don't have my problem listed. But you know, there's one other way to look at this. The folks in the Wild West didn't have to put up with all these technological problems of today. They only had minor problems like outlaws, Indians, droughts, incurable diseases, serious accidents far from a doctor, and numerous other things. Now, I ask you, who had it worse? Now that that's off my chest, let's visit with W.R. Benton. We want to welcome to the Wild West Showdown today best-selling author W.R. Benton. Welcome, Mr. Benton. Thank you. I remember when I first started using Facebook, I saw the name W.R. Benton almost every day. As of late, I haven't seen that name very much. Can you explain why there's not been much activity? Well, I'm currently busy. I'm writing a lot of books, and I often write two or three at a time. I work on one in the morning, one in the afternoon, one in the evenings. And I write different categories, and I don't write just westerns all the time. I, that's my love, but I also write apocalyptic-type things, southern humor, young adults. I'm trying to get the young adults interested in westerns. But when you write for a young adult, you better write and use totally different language. You might need to explain that. Well, when you write for a young adult, you want to keep that language clean, but you also want to keep it more simple than you would, not as sophisticated as writing for adults. You try to keep the blood and gore scenes down to where they're more acceptable to that age limit. But at the same time, you want to be able to convey an interesting plot to hook that young reader and make them want to read more Westerns. I see potentially the danger of losing the West to the young. People are no longer interested today like they used to be 50, 60 years ago. Most of us grew up, my age or older, we played Cowboys and Indians. And it was not derogatory toward either side. It was simply a game we played and we didn't know any better and we had a blast. But today they don't do that. You know, they're playing gangsters or they're playing hip-hop or they're doing something that's not associated with any sort of history. 
my goals is to get those young readers hooked on Western so they learn what cowboys and cowgirls were really like, their ethics or morals or personal values and their sense of personal honor, which I think is lacking in society today. I want to teach these kids as well as entertain them, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, and I agree with you 100%. And in my opinion, the young people of today do need that education. I read where you were born in Vida, Missouri. Can you tell us a little bit about Vida, Missouri? Well, there's not much to it. I think our entering and leaving signs are on the same post. I know for a fact if you blink, you won't see it. It's about eight miles south of a university town called Rolla. It's in Missouri Ozarks. I was actually not born in Vida, but that's the closest place on a map. I was born in the spare bedroom of my grandparents' house on their farm. My grandmother was a midwife, and she delivered me. And we had a little one-room schoolhouse up there that we attended. And the teacher taught eight grades, and then from ninth grade to graduation in high school, they were bused into the town of Rolla to attend high school there. I also read where you lived in a house with a dirt floor, no electricity, and no running water. That's true. Probably the only reason we had a floor in our house was because my daddy poured cement for a living. Now, folks today wouldn't understand a place like that. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, you know, and a lot of people don't realize that we're talking recent times. In the last 40 to 50, 60 years, America has progressed tremendously as far as living standards for most people. My mom used to actually sweep that dirt floor, and I used to think that was such a waste of time because there's dirt <laughs> under it, you know? Made it look a whole lot better, though, didn't it? I reckon you could call us both country boys, real country boys. Yeah. We're always hearing these stories about people walking to school uphill both ways. I understand you walk to school every day. That's right. And it wasn't uphill both ways, but it felt like it. (laughs) And you ate something that young folks today probably wouldn't know what it is. You ate moon pies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they come in different flavors and different varieties, but they're essentially just a, a graham cracker type thing with a marshmallow in the center and covered with this either chocolate or or banana-flavored. It looks like chocolate, what it looks like. I remember it well. Moon pies and RC cola. Couldn't be nothing no better. I haven't seen an RC in a long time. (laughs) No, I hadn't either. But that moon pie and RC cola or a knee-high orange, that was really a treat when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'd haul hay and stop and get both, you know. You said you learned from your school teacher and your great-grandmother, who you said lived to be 103 years old. Was she a good storyteller? Well, her memory was still sound, but her body was going on her, and she was bedridden. She knew Jesse James. She knew the Youngers. And she used to tell me tall tales about them as well as the Youngers, uh, Bob, Jim, Cole Younger. And... It stirred my interest in the West because she'd actually lived during that period. She thought Cole Younger was just the handsomest man alive. Why she didn't marry him, I have no idea. I have no no knowledge of her relationship with him or if she knew him that well or what, but she was just fascinated by the man. And she claimed that they were forced into lives of crime with the, the game, all those games, James Boys, the Youngers, and some of the others because of the Reconstruction period following the Civil War. 
I, I do know when Jesse James tried to surrender at the end of the war, he took a bullet so close to his heart that his father, who was a doctor, wouldn't even attempt to remove the bullet. It was too dangerous. So he died with that bullet in him later. But, you know, when you try to surrender your camp, what kind of options do you have? So they they turned to crime, and I and I do think he was a killer. I don't think he started out to be one, but when he entered the war, he was about 16 years old, and it was ingrained in him, I think, by the time the war was over, for survival purposes. But I do know that his goal was not primarily just to hit the banks for the money. If you research through historical papers, you'll find that he hit only Yankee banks. So he was trying to pay them back because they wouldn't allow him to surrender to war's end, take an oath of allegiance to the United States, and just live a normal farmer life, which is what he wanted. And then she told me a story once about uh, Widow was crying one night when Jesse James pulled up to her door and was forced and dismounted, asked her what the tears were about. Well, her, her husband, who had served with Jesse, had just died the month before. The banker was coming there tomorrow to take the farm because they couldn't make the mortgage payments. So he discovered she owed three or four hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, whatever it was, and he gave her the money and told her it was in memory of his old war buddy, her husband, and to go ahead and pay the banker. Well, the next morning, the banker shows up, very surprised that she gives him the cash, and he signs the deed and gives it to her. And on his way back to town, Jesse James and the boys stepped in the woods and said, this is a robbery. So he got his five hundred dollars back. <laughs> Let me ask you this. I was probably 10 years old when we got our first television. How old were you when you got your first television? Probably 16. We, we got electricity about the same year. It been 68. It was a black and white set, of course. Uh, there, were, yeah. there were color sets out then, but only so many color shows. And we watched westerns a lot. Uh, Rawhide, Bonanza, anything with Clint Walker and some of the bigger names in there, you know. How about the movie theater? Did you go see the matinee on Saturday afternoon like everybody else? Well, we tried to. Uh, we were fairly poor, as you could guess, by the third floor uh, until I started working. Uh, I was 12, 13 when I started hauling hay and cutting cordwood. And I was making fairly good money hauling hay, $20, $30 a day, which isn't much at this time period. But at that time it was when the minimum wage was about 75 cents an hour. And I was making almost three times what the person on minimum wage was making in a day. Then we'd go to the movies on, on Saturday. I'd go see an occasional movie, but the problem was I was eight miles south of the, the town. It was kind of hard to get transportation in and out. But I liked Westerns then, too. How old were you when you joined the Air Force? I was 18 years old, uh, close to 19, in 1971. I went to serve in Southeast Asia twice and then came back. Started to get out, was offered a really good job working for a drugstore uh, in a management position, but declined and, and for some reason stayed in. I, I think I had a sense of loyalty to the country. It's something you don't see much these days, and I wanted to serve. So I went on to serve for 26 years, retired with an E-8, got out, and uh, a year later I was divorced, and which kind of surprised me, but I was divorced and decided, well, I can either sit here in my pity pot and drink, or I can get up off my rear end and start doing something productive. And that's when I started writing, actually, I mean, uh -huh. with the intention of doing a novel. You're going in the Air Force reminds me a little bit of that movie starring Andy Griffith, No Time for Sergeants. I, I was pretty similar to that. 
<laughs> uh, you did have a pair of shoes, though, didn't you? When I got in the military, I wrote my grandpa and told him I had five pairs of shoes, you know. He wrote back and said, son, you're either a thief or a liar, because ain't nobody in the world got five pairs of shoes. Did you ever wonder what your life would have been like if you hadn't joined the Air Force? Yeah, I would have probably continued what I was doing. I would have been cutting cordwood. Um, I don't think I'd be sitting here today with a master's degree. I don't think I would have gotten a lot of the opportunities. But but for me, the military is a good deal. Yes, there's some dangers associated with the profession. You can be killed, even in the Navy or Air Force. There's no guarantee any of us when we enlist that we'll survive the tour. But if you do, the educational benefits are just phenomenal. They're, they're excellent, or they were at the time I was in. I worked full-time while I was on active duty and went to school at night and on the weekends to get my bachelor's. And I met the requirements for my bachelor's on a Friday, and Monday I started my master's program because I knew if I stopped, I wouldn't go on. You mentioned a little bit earlier about the young people of today need to read Westerns to learn morals and stuff. I think all young people today should go in some sort of military. Military teaches responsibility. It teaches about morals. teaches all kinds of things that the young people today seem to be missing out on. I agree with you 100% because one of the key things that the military teaches most Americans that I see missing in our society is discipline. Yes, I agree. When I tell you I'll be someplace at 9 o'clock this morning, I'll be there unless I'm in the hospital, injured, or had a serious problem come up. And if that happens, I'll call you if I can and let you know ahead of time. I feel exactly the same way. In fact, I try to always get there a little bit early if I can. I couldn't make it as a writer if not for the military discipline because I set my own schedule. I work when I want to. And without discipline, I would never work. And I would never get anything done. Then I wouldn't bring in any money, and, you know, the household would fold. So I get up every morning at 5, have my coffee, get woke up, watch a little news, sit down and write till noon, take a couple-hour break, and then go back and write again till dark. And the reason for that is this is the way I bring home the bacon. I have to write. I want any income. You mentioned a little earlier about writing two or three stories at the same time. A person who isn't a writer probably doesn't understand that. Can you explain how you keep them all separate? That's simple. They're two different stories. They're three different stories. You know, <laughs> I, 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 what I, in my mind, what I do when I sit down to write a Western is I allow, or any book actually, I allow my characters to tell me the story. My mind switches to the character back and forth in the book as the characters speak and as the actions unfolding. I'm not one of these people who sits down with an outline and I'm bound by what's on that outline. I free range, more or less, is what I call it. Uh, The characters take over. I keep short reins on them and keep them headed in the right direction. But I let them do the storytelling and to come up with the plot as it develops. And 99% of my books have been in the top 100. Probably a good 50-60% have been in the top 20 for that particular category or a genre of books. So I'm doing well with it. I think it's a challenge. I've got 30 or 32 books out right now, or e-books. It's a challenge when you start to have that many to sit down and come up with different plots, different characters, and different types of excitement and adventure in that particular book. 
but if you've got a really active mind, and this is where my military comes in too, because I often remember back in my travels in the service of what it looks like in Arizona, what it feels like in New Mexico, what the cold is like in Alaska, or what the heat was like when I was in the Philippines. All of these things can help an author. And the more experiences you have as a writer, I think the better your stories will end up being. And, of course, I have a master's in psychology, clinical psychology. So that gives me a heads up on human behavior and how we react to various things. But I try to use all of that to tell a good story and, in some cases, educate my reader. Uh, one of my books is actually going to be made into a movie sometime next year. So it's going well. Do you mind if we take a little break here and listen to some country music? Okay. Here's a young lady that's a fantastic singer. You know what I like about her besides her music? She's from Fort Worth, Texas. This is Kimmy Hudson singing When the Cowboys Sing Again. Lazy rivers roll, kettle grazing 
that's what this old cowboy calls talent. And it's Texas talent, too. Now let's welcome back to the show, best-selling author, W.R. Benton. Welcome back, Mr. Benton. Thank you. You write under a pen name. Is there a reason for that? Oh, definitely so. One of the greatest men that ever lived was my grandfather. You won't read his name in any books. He's not in any historical society. Uh, most people have never seen his picture. But he was a cowboy. He was a blacksmith, too. A hard-working man. A very deep, deep sense of Southern heritage. By that, I mean he considered himself a Southern gentleman, and he really was. He was very much a man of personal honor, deep personal honor, and he would strive to help others when he knew he was not going to get anything out of it. He was a, a man who used to sit for hours on a fence post beside me and tell me stories of when he was growing up or what the West was like, and basically was shaping me into the man I am today. If I think without my grandfather, I wouldn't be the person I am. His first name was William Robert, and no one ever called him Billy Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he would have tolerated that very long. And I use the initials WR to honor him, uh, the most influential man in my life, next to my drill sergeant probably. <laughs> Sounded like a great man. Are you self-published, or do you have a publisher? Well, I have a publisher, but uh, he's very, very low-key. Uh, he's not a big one. I see nothing wrong with self-publishing. First thing I want to make clear is I don't think any author could ever be, have to pay to be published. If you're good, if your books hook that reader and carry them on, and you leave them hanging at each chapter so they want to go to the next chapter, which is an effective tool, to keep them reading and motivated, then your books should be worth the risk for any publisher to print and distribute. If you're publishing just because you wrote a story about you and your wife when you were married for 30, 40 years, and you know you don't want to make any real money, it's just for some fun, yeah, I think that would be a good time to self-publish. But to pay money to have your book published, to me, is, is not good, because a good book doesn't have to be paid for. Okay, let me ask you this. If you weren't getting paid to write, would you continue to write? Yeah, beyond a doubt. When I was a kid, we'd sit on the front porch and eat watermelon and make up stories off the top of our heads to entertain each other. How long does it usually take you to write a book? Well, it depends. As a veteran, I've got one book about the Vietnam War that I've been working on for 10 years. I work on it for a bit and then have to stop and go to something else. Uh, because I can't, it's kind of therapeutic, but in some ways it's not. So when it gets to be too much, I quit writing about it. But to write Westerns, to me, I can turn out a Western in about a month and a half, two months, which doesn't sound real fast, but try to write 20, 30 chapters creatively every day. It tends to be overwhelming. Many people start a book and never finish it. It takes a lot of discipline. Yes, it does take some discipline. You mentioned that your character's try to take over your story. Do you find that they do take it over at times? They try to. For instance, if I've got a bad guy, he may want to go rampant and just start killing and going nuts. But, see, it's important to remember that each one of those characters is actually a part of my conscious or subconscious. They actually live within me. I just don't allow them out of their box very often, you know. How do you come up with the titles and names of your characters? There's a number of ways to do that. One, I go online and I research Confederate units or union units. And I look at the names on there, and I'll take the first name from one guy and the last name from another. Like Gate Masters are actually two different men that served in the Civil War in the South. Nate Grisham 
another one of my characters is actually uh, two different names for slaves that were around at that time. And he's a black man that I write about. I write about minorities as well as, as white because I don't think that uh, their story is being told either. Names are easy. Titles are sometimes very complex. But what I try to do is I will start writing under a fictitious name, like I might call it the book two, and just tell the story. And somewhere, by the time I get to about page 220 or 200, a name will start to form within the mind. And I'll take that name and work with it, run it across to my publisher and editors and see what they think, and uh, take it from there. For instance, the, the, the book series I have out called Fall of America, it's about the collapse of our nation, and it's an apocalyptic type thing. And for 12 years in the service, I taught survival aircrew members, so I know how to live off the land, off the grid. And I use this in the book. There's currently four available for purchase on Amazon, and all my books are available on Amazon. But they've done real well, selling thousands and thousands of copies. I use the characters there by remembering first and last names of people I served with. If you could be any of the characters in your books, which one would you choose? I like the Western character, Nate Grisham. He's a black man. I only mention the fact he's black once or twice in the beginning of the book. Uh, I don't seem to need to keep bringing it up. People will remember. But he's strong, he's big, he's muscular, and he's a lot like my grandfather in his thinking. Motivated me tremendously because he's got a very deep sense of honor and uh, chivalry, you know, which is, which is dead today. I opened the door for a young lady at Walmart. The other day, I walked in behind her, and I heard her say to her girlfriend, did you see that old man open the door for me? He was coming on to me. I was just being polite, you know. But, yeah, I like him because he's very strong. He's got a good sense of ethics and morals, and he's, he teaches my readers what is missing today, how to live like a cowboy, essentially. You mentioned that your books are bestsellers on Amazon. Without giving away any trade secrets, can you tell the rest of us how we can become bestsellers? Yeah, write, 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 and then write some more. When you get done writing, edit. Is there a new book in the near future for W.R. Benton? Well, there's one coming out uh, this week or next. It's called Silently Beats the Drum. It was the first book I ever wrote. This book was published in 2005, and uh, I just got the rights back. It, it probably sold enough to get a, a burger and some fries someplace. But that's because they were doing no marketing, and they really weren't pushing me like they should have. So I retained the rights, went through, revised it, cut about half of it out, added another half, and uh, basically restructured the whole book. But it's about a Civil War guy who loses a leg. The only thing that's kept him alive through the whole war is a love for his girlfriend, his fiance. He goes back to Missouri, to the actual town. Uh, that, that's real. It acted uh, to see her, and she fell in love with someone else while he was off the war. Well, he had met these two slaves that were runaways on his way back to Missouri, and they all three migrate out west and decide they're going to uh, homestead. And book one, it's going to be a series. Book one is uh, them actually first arriving out west and meeting the Indians. And the Indians have never seen a black people before. They've never seen a one-legged man before, and they're just astounded, you know. It's a pretty good read. Have you ever gotten discouraged and said, I've had enough, I just, I'm going to quit? Well, I'm a writer, of course I have. Let me ask you this. How many times have you quit? Probably two or three. Not very often because I'm not a quitter. 
But I have enough rejection slips saved up. I could probably wallpaper the living room. Yes, those rejection slips can discourage you, can't they? Yeah, yeah. Do you hear from your readers very much? Oh, yeah, yeah. Online on Amazon, I have a spot where you can make your comments. Not just when you buy the book or after you read it, but I actually have a page on there on Amazon. Just click on W.R. Benton, uh, go to one of my books, and it will have my name up there as a link. You'll see it's a different color. If you click on that, it'll take you to my Amazon page, which shows all my books. Uh, and there's a place down there that you can comment. Some have eaten me alive. Some of them are just downright nasty and mean. But a majority of them are, are happy readers. And you're not going to be able to please everybody all the time. That's, that's a given. So I try to please myself first. No, I'm giving my readers a good product for what they're paying for. And I want to give them more good products in the future because that's, that's how you do business. What kind of advice would you give a new author or someone that wants to be an author? The first two or three things that come to mind is, number one, decide if this is what you really want to be or are you just playing around. You know, if you're a part-time writer, it's just something you want to do to pass the time. That's fine. But if you want to do this for a career, if you want to quit your day job, nine times out of ten, it's not going to happen overnight with that first book. Learn proper grammar. Learn about the subject you're writing about. I write about Western, so I have to know about everything from a Hawking rifle to a Henry Repeater. I have to know about 44s. I have to know about a number of different things. And horses, bridles, saddles, saddle horns, blankets, the whole row. You know, you need to know what you're talking about before you can write about it. And I conduct a tremendous amount of research. And I'm often asked to endorse books that I can't because of too many errors. Know the subject. And finally, write the best you can. And don't sit there and wonder about one word. Keep the story flowing. You can come back and change words when you edit. And that brings me to my last point is tell your story as well as you can. And then use a professional editor. Not your mama, not your sister or your brother because they love you. They're going to tell you what they think you want to hear. Get a professional who can sometimes be very blunt and cold. You need to know if you're going to be a writer, is this book worth publishing or not? And they'll make suggestions. They'll find inconsistencies. They'll find words that are used inconsistently or words that are used too frequently, maybe on the same page of paragraph. Uh, they'll clean that thing up to where it's the best it can be, but they're not cheap. So, you know, that's where you have to separate the professional the part-time writer. If you can't afford an editor, well, you put it out and hope for the best. But if you want to really do this for a living, editors are essential. I have three, and I run a book through all three of them. And you know, there's still errors at times. And I find them in books put out by large companies because uh, you can't catch all of them. You really can't. But that's that what I would recommend to a new author, and, and dedicate a certain amount of time every day to writing, uh, 15, 20 minutes if that's all you've got, or if you're out of work, and, you know, spend the whole day writing. Very good advice. Very good indeed. Let me ask this. Do you have your books on audio? Yeah, some of them are. I want to thank you, Mr. Benton, for being our guest on the Wild West Showdown today. I've really enjoyed it. And I want to give you a special invitation to come back and visit with us at any time. Oh, any time, partner. You just contact me. We'll talk anytime you want to talk. Okay, we'll talk at you later then. 
Okay, you take care and God bless you. I told you at the beginning of the show that we had a talented couple. Kimmy Hudson just sang her song. Now let's listen to her husband, Mark Munzert, reciting his poem, Ranch Rain. The sun squints, clouds rolling in. Smell it coming, carried on wind. Sprinkle, drizzle, hanging there. It's in currents, moist, full air. Button up, tire down. Storms coming, I hear it sound. As droplets drip on my rodeo king, splatter my slicker, it begins to sing. Branches break, crops sway, sweet torrents drown sound away. Pouring puddles, carving ruts. Cow dogs, just drenched mutts. Cross the creek and up the hill, cold is coming, I feel the chill. Mud squishes with each stride. Steady, the big quarters Cadillac glide. Collar up, saddle creaking, murky sight, boots are leaking. I drop my blade in the muck. Wise guy chimes, nice day for duck. Yeah, funny original, heard that before. Bucket rain, big floods, great lore. All God's creatures soaked in strain. Mostly I enjoy it. Old bones, though, pain. Flash and rumble from dark sky, likely a message from on high. Here's your water, mind it well. Life without is dust bowl hell. Gone as quickly as it came, nothing untouched, never the same. The aroma, it lingers still. Just weather or God's will. Did you enjoy that? I think you can count on us having those folks back on the show. Mark Munzert and his wife, Kimmy Hudson. Thanks, you two, for allowing us to share your talent with the rest of the world. We want to give a special thank you to best-selling author W.R. Benton for being our special guest author today. Looks like it's going to be time to wind it up, but before I go, I have a little bit of cowboy wisdom for you. This is very important that you need to remember it. Keep skunks, bankers, and lawyers at a distance. This is the old cowboy saying adios and happy trails. Come on back next week to the Wild West Showdown with the old cowboy J.C. Holsey. Thank you.